Hey everybody, just real quick before the show started, uh, this is Steve, and I just wanted to let you know, for all the latest information on our podcast, hit us up on Twitter at EILF Movies, that's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art, or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday, or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict. Uh, basically, Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one-line plot holes and gratuitous movies, it's time to get busy with your friend Stephen Thomas Jane is an acclaimed actor who starred in dozens of Hollywood movies, including being the lead in The Punisher, The Mist, and Deep Blue Sea. However, he's also starred in some great ensemble movies, including Face Off, The Thin Red Line, Boogie Nights, and is currently in the upcoming movies The Predator, AXL, and has been starring in the sci-fi channel series The Expanse. Mr. Jane is kind enough to join us on Everything I Learned from Movies. Hey, pal. Hello, Hello Mr. Huh? Jane. How are you? Pretty good. Yourself? Pretty good. Who's, uh, who's this lovely lady you got pictured here? That's my little girl. Oh, adorable. Yeah. <laughs> She's, uh, she ain't so little anymore. She's 15. Oh, oh okay. It's so a little older picture. Nice. <laughs> First and foremost, th- thank you for taking time to talk to us and everything. I'm here with my wife, Izzy. Hello. Hi, Izzy. Thank you so much for giving us a little piece of your time. My pleasure. Where are you guys? Uh, San Francisco. Here, well, oh, Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Berkeley. Right. Well, that's good. So you're West Coasters. Yeah, yeah. So you guys been doing this a while, interviewing people? A uh, little, little over a year now. We've had uh, yeah, some some pretty incredible guests, but uh, we've never had a Marvel superhero before. We're kind of excited. <laughs> not gonna lie. <laughs> what got you into this? Uh, mo- mo- what kind of movies are you guys into, and all that? All kinds, really. Uh, for our podcast, primarily, it's more the uh, the, the ones questionable that the we love, but there's, for example, like Face Off. Like, it, there there's a real love for it, even though it's about guys switching faces and stuff like that, and it really, you know, it's not going to win Academy Awards, but we love them none right. the same. <laughs> um, so... Okay, so what what does that mean, uh, Face Off? Is that, you know, John Woo directed that, is that... Um... The uh, is there the uh, the pulpy kind of offbeat kind of movies or what? Exactly, yeah, the ones yeah. kind of the, the movies that like the Academy would consider bad movies and like movie snobs would be like, oh, that's just garbage. But they're wrong. They're great movies. Well, of course they're wrong. I mean, no true movie snob would ever disparage any kind of movie. Yeah, there's um, so many do. There, <laughs> <laughs> there's all all kinds of different. That's what's great about uh, film, you know. It's just like any other art form, whether it's novels or graphic novels. I mean, there's there's the the range of material is vast, and to be, uh, you know, talented and make something really interesting is, you know, you can you can choose just about any genre or type of movie you can, and you'll find examples of some really fantastic stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're our uh, kind of the focus of our podcast is kind of bring that to life and tell people like you know even though a critic may say it's not worth your time you know maybe it is maybe maybe it is it's, everybody's got their own type. <laughs> exactly. Like action movies don't get their due in the film world and like so many of them are fabulous but they often are kind of written off and that's both Steve and I's like kind of forte so we we do a lot of like action movies and. Mm. Are you into the um, into the whole uh, Asian cinema thing too? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Wu's early stuff, all that. Like everything were like hard boiled, and um, wow. I have a whole lot of like Sunny Chiba and you know uh, yeah. early Jackie Chan movies. I have all that stuff. Our very first guest was Sven Olthorsen. So <laughs> <laughs> who's that? Um, He's a uh, Danish former bodybuilder and a kickboxing champion. Uh, if you've watched Schwarzenegger movies, he's popped up in a bunch of those. Um, Tigress oh. from Gladiator. Yeah, Tigress from Gladiator. Um, oh. okay. He was a Thorgrim in uh, Conan the Barbarian. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, just big big guy. You'd probably recognize him. Be like, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy in things. But <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, but uh, let's uh, let's talk about you, if you don't mind. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, but typically with these interviews, we just like to start, you know, uh, kind of walk through your life. Like, uh, I guess, first and foremost, uh, where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Uh, and how did you kind of get into acting and entertainment? I grew up outside of, uh, I was born in Baltimore. I grew up outside of D.C. in Maryland um, and uh, dropped out of high school. I discovered acting. I was building the sets for uh, for the um high school uh, theater department and because I was friends with the guys who would you know who were more the artists who were painting the scenery and, and building the sets and that you know getting their hands dirty that was something that I, I liked to do and I was attracted to that crowd and they um, I was always kind of goofing off and m- making jokes and playing practical jokes on people. So they thought it would just be a real kick if I were to audition for this play that we were doing, uh, which was like a vaudeville. Um, I had a great teacher, and his name was Mr. Brodsky. And uh, he put together this really fantastic vaudeville uh, show that we were – so we were all rehearsing. And, and, I, and he gave me a part in one of these things. It was sort of like an old Laurel and Hardy skit um, about called Niagara Falls – and it's a it's a it's a funny one and um and uh i did that and fell in love with the whole thing right there on the spot you know i dropped out of high school uh the next year to study acting in bethesda maryland with a guy named ralph tabakin and ralph is um He's in all of Barry Levinson's films until Ralph died. Uh, Levinson shot his films in Baltimore, and uh, you'll find Tabakin in there um, at playing like small parts here and there. Like in Diner, he's the TV salesman, um, and uh, young Sherlock Holmes, he plays like a Bobby uh, British, you know, cop walking down the street with his, and he sees some, you know, he just. These little sort of cameos, Tabakin was like his Barry, Barry Levinson's Alfred Hitchcock moment for some. He just loved this guy. He was like his good luck charm. But he was also a really uh, 
dedicated, you know, actor. He came from the stage in New York and he did radio and television and film. And he was an old guy by the time he started. I started studying with him when I was 15. And, uh, you know, he he taught me the basics. His his uh, stage was above a liquor store in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. He had his own. He was a smart guy. He had his own uh, tell. He bought an old like 1950s television camera and he put an antenna on the roof and we would he would broadcast. So we, we would get these old you know, like, you know, sides from commercials and uh, little scenes from soap operas and he would film us doing these scenes and broadcast it into the local neighborhood. You know, he, he did, didn't have much power, but in, you know, probably a half mile radius around this liquor store, if these, and we'd start getting calls from the uh, housewives who were trying to watch their, you know, public broadcasting or soap opera in the middle of the day. And we'd break in with these little commercials and skits and stuff. But Ralph's television tube uh, was an old one, so it would kind of it was stre- it stretched out the image a little bit, and made us all look a bit like Martians. <laughs> uh, and so the old ladies or the people at home in the afternoon watching their show would suddenly they'd break in and they'd see these people with big eyes and kind of stretched out faces, you know, talking about like cat food or or doing some weird skit, and. Ralph's thing was, you know, now you can put it on your resume that you've been on television and you won't be lying. It was it was uh, it's kind of, a, you know, it was, you know, when you're from Maryland and you're trying to, you know, uh, get a foot in the door. It was Ralph's way of, you know, letting you put something on your resume. Uh, he was a but I was sweeping the floors at a hardware store. And going to uh, his class, I think four or five days a week, and working on the side, trying to trying to save up some money. And I got a call from Ralph at the hardware store, and he said uh, that he had some Indians from India in town, and they were filmmakers from Bollywood, and they were making a Bollywood kind of Romeo and Juliet type story. And they were looking for a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid to play the romantic lead opposite this giant Indian movie star. So I said, Ralph, uh, that sounds great, but I, I don't have blue eyes. My eyes are green. You know, I, I don't have blue. He goes, you got blue eyes now. You go down there and you go get the part, you see. Uh, and I get 10% because I'm acting as your agent like this in this regard. He was... Um, he was a great old guy, you know. He had big bushy eyebrows, and he always smoked a pipe, and he looked a lot like sort of an older version of Popeye. <laughs> uh, a great man, and he. I did. I went down to Virginia and met these Bollywood filmmakers when I was uh, 16 years old, and I got the part. And we proceeded to run around the whole country in a in an RV and a couple of vans. And film was Bollywood film. And then we all packed up and went to India, where I lived for five five or six months in India. Oh, um, 16, yeah. I, I, turned, I turned 17 in, in India. And then uh, they wanted me to stay. They gave me a contract and a car and an apartment. It was just like the old studio. I mean, they ran 
in the this was in the 80s 1980s and they ran their studios exactly like 1940 Hollywood um, they modeled their whole movie business on the 1940s Hollywood business and they still ran it like that they even had in India at the time it was very common to see these old 1940s 1950s cars running around um, they would just keep them running, and some of them, you know, look brand new. So you'd see these old 50s, 40s cars pull up to the studio gates, and the Hollywood stars would get out, and there'd be a big crowd around, and they'd walk. They were going into work. I mean, it was amazing. It was like going back in time, you know, and I got to hang out on the studio sets and watch them mix the movie and just get the, it was my first, it was my introduction into the film business. Uh, it was all in Bollywood, you know, and I hung out with the producers and the directors and the actors and, and, uh, running around the studio and seeing how everything worked. And, uh, finally I had to get out of there. I, I couldn't stay, uh, you know, uh, five months when you're 17, 16 is a long time. Yeah, it seems like forever. <laughs> so I packed up my stuff, flew back home. Um, you know, they, they'd given me in lieu of payment, they couldn't pay me. Of course, the Indians are tricky people. That's the other thing you got to keep in mind. They're kind of like the Italians in that regard. They're, they, they know how to squeeze a buck. So instead of, they're like, look, instead of giving us, you know, your last paycheck, we're going to give you the RV that we bought for this trip. It's yours. Um, and I thought about driving this RV across the country and going and, you know, uh, to California, but it, but I decided, but I actually was running around with some friends in it, and it broke down on the New Jersey Turnpike. Ooh. And I found a guy who had a 1969 Camaro convertible. Yeah. And he said, I will give you this car. We'll make a trade. You give me the RV, I'll give you the 69 convertible. And I made the trade with him, and I drove out to California in a 69 convertible uh, Camaro. Um, well, I love that car. It was yeah. We had a a lot of great adventures together, me and that, uh, me and that, that black Camaro. Did you give her a name? Uh, that's 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 confidential. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I had an '85 Camaro was my first car, so that's why I had to ask. <laughs> yeah, all my buddies had Camaros. You know, I had three of them. I had a '69. Uh, I had uh, a '73, which is also a great. That was the last year that I thought. You know. The, the really good-looking, old-school, classic 60s and 70s Camaros. 73 was was the last year of, like, just the, the real, the, the, what I call the real Camaros. Yeah, they started getting more box-like after that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And, I had, uh, and I had a 79 Camaro. drove that for a while, too, which I, did, I didn't like that as much. But the 69 and the 73 were fantastic. California. And then, uh, you know, started bumming around and got, finally ended up, you know, getting some work. Uh, you were on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Zeph. I, I, didn't, I haven't seen that movie in forever, and I saw that on your IMDb page and was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that was my first job in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the movie business out here. I met uh, Paul Rubens on that set. We're still friends today. Uh, I met David Arquette. Uh, and, uh, you know, met a, I met a bunch of nice people, but, uh, it was Joanna Ray was the casting director 
And it was really her, you know, going in and auditioning for her. I was doing theater on Santa Monica Boulevard. I don't know if you know, but on Santa Monica Boulevard out here, they still have a bunch of little 99-seat, 50-seat uh, theaters. And people rent them out, or they have little theater companies, and they're constantly doing plays. And sometimes, you know, most nights, you'll have five people in the audience. Um, it's a real labor of love. This, that, but that little theater community I was a part of for some years. And uh, what was my point? Uh, I forget. <laughs> well, and, with, and being part of that community and stuff, did that uh, get, just get you more connected with people that were in movies and kind of get, get your foot in the door, as you said? Right. My, yeah, I remember. So Joanna Ray was one of the casting directors who would actually sort of go around and and check out these these bad plays. You know, most of them were some of them were great. You know, we I was involved with some really terrific productions, and I highly recommend anybody to go down and check it out. Anybody thinking about acting, um, it's a fantastic place to start, and you know, sort of cut your teeth as these um, smaller you know uh, theaters. It doesn't matter what town you're in. Um, You'll find some really interesting people, and you'll find hopefully some people who really know their stuff, and you can learn a lot. But Joanna was one of those rare casting directors who would go and watch these plays, and she saw me in one of these things and started bringing me in for auditions. She brought me in for dozens of auditions um, because she just she thought you know she liked she thought I had something. She thought I was good. Um, and I can't tell you how important that is. You know, you, you get a, a good casting director who, who's on your side. She brought me in for dozens of stuff, and I was a terrible auditioner. You know, I, I didn't know anything about the the art of auditioning, if there is an art to auditioning. I'm sure there is. But uh, I'm still terrible at it. You know, I mean, the rare occasion when I go out and, and, uh, and have been asked to audition for stuff, uh, when I do break down and decide to do it, I'm generally just fucking awful at it, um, and uh, it's a whole—it's a whole sort of art. You know, you can be a great auditioner and be kind of a shitty actor um, when you get on set. I mean, that's to some extent that's true. But I found there's a lot of guys like me who can't audition for shit, but it's actually um, can do a great job. And and some directors know this. You know, and, and some don't. So fortunately, I got hired by some guys who sort of saw that and uh, and started working. But it's thanks to Joanna Ray, you know, that I started work, working in little parts like that. Excellent. And uh, some of your early movies I have written down I love are like Nemesis uh, from like 1992, uh, where you worked with director Albert Pune and like Tim Thomerson. Uh-huh. Um, I, I love Albert Pune, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we uh we we featured a couple of his movies. <laughs> well, he was terrific, you know, for that that time that he uh you know, cuz most of those movies made at that budget are just god awful. Yeah. But but he had, you know, and again, like I believe in what you're what you're saying, uh, there's people who can operate in that arena and do a really uh good job and they can really make some terrific stuff. What was Pune's famous? What was the famous one? It was Cyborg, Cyborg right? Cyborg, yeah, I think that's the the biggest one. But yeah, a lot of like the the late canon pictures and uh, a couple Jean Claude after that and stuff. <laughs> nah, Cyborg, that fight in the rain at the end—that's yeah. that's classic stuff. Very good. 
Excellent. And then uh, you were a couple years later, you were in uh, the Crow City of Angels, uh, the 1996 sequel. Um, yeah. How how was how was that? I I see a couple times when it first came out. I remember the soundtrack being amazing, but <laughs> but it was like being on set. Uh, Ed Pressman produced that movie. I remember the 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 um, art department printed up. They were selling whatever drug they were doing in that movie. Um, you know, they were making these little baggies, and they put a cartoon. Uh, head of Ed Pressman, the producer's head on all these little baggies. I remember that. <laughs> that was a fun little inside joke. Nice, nice. Um, you know, the the guy who directed it came out of uh, music videos. That was very popular in the 90s. If you made a couple of decent music videos, they'd hand you a bunch of money to make a movie. It rarely worked out. But yeah, you, you get you get what you pay for. You know? um, and we had one of these guys direct it. You know, uh, I remember hanging out with Iggy Pop. I thought that was cool. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was doing my makeup or getting getting in the makeup trailer, and Iggy Pop would walk in and he'd take his shirt off and he'd just be covered in these razor blade scars. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was a punk rocker when I was a kid, and uh, and, and and so that was a big moment for me. You know. Uh, that was great. It's got to be a dream come true. Yeah, and, and I'm actually just more surprised Iggy Pop actually had a shirt on to take off at that time. <laughs> yeah, maybe, really see that. <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he didn't. Maybe he never did have a shirt on. I don't know. But uh, he was a great guy. We get to hang out with him a little bit. You know, um, I, um, funnily enough, I would start, you know, I started a graphic novel company uh, years later, and the guy who I partnered with is named Tim Bradstreet. And if you go to rawstudios.com, you'll find a lot of Tim's work and my work uh, that we, we did. The, the gra- I haven't done any graphic novels in a few years, but we worked together um, intimately for a few years. But Tim had already drawn me. He's like, you know, and he's done a bunch of drawings of me. I've done he's I've posed for him uh, for covers for a number of different things, um, comic book stuff, Marvel stuff. And he goes, you know, I've already drawn you, man. Check this out. And he had done a piece for the Crow, City of Angels, and he had a real nice piece of my character in there that he'd already done, and that was fun. If you're if you're into comic books at all, I I, I see this crickets over there. No, no, wait, we're we're just uh, in awe listening. No, I I'm actually a, a illustrator by trade, so always into new comics, especially things with interesting art and interesting characters oh you gotta check out uh, tim bradstreet's work he's he's phenomenal uh, stuff he's doing lately too is also brilliant but he's always been brilliant um i love i love uh i love great artists you know i love working with them uh, i got a soft spot for comic book artists oh, yeah. that's an underappreciated art yeah, I mean, so far, I mean, it's kind of dying, I guess. I don't know. The comic book sales are down. Um, I mean, the art itself, there's still great guys coming up, you know. Uh, he's fine. They're mostly out of Argentina or uh, places like that these days. I think everybody's moving towards working on the tablet, and that, that sort of produces a different style. Um, some of it can be very good. You know, but again, like comics, are the it's so broad. You know, you you can find these great quirky underground books. You can find really intellectual, 
um, philosophical type books, you know, uh, and just everything, you know, westerns, witches, just everything you could possibly think of. Somebody's done a graphic novel, uh, so that's you know a wonderful art form. Wonderful art form. Oh yes, I've got a couple of friends who are in that business and struggling with the indie identity. <laughs> Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, if you don't, you know, if you get to work for Marvel, at least they, you can get a little health insurance and stuff like that. But uh, if you're an indie comic book artist, man, you're talk about the struggle. I, I drew a lot in high school, too. And before I discovered the acting thing, I was going to be a comic book artist. And that's that's what I was. And I was pretty good. I was I could draw. Um, but I kind of thank God that uh, I got steered in a different direction because boy that's the struggle it's a, it's t- and, the, and I got so much respect for the people that actually make a living at it you know and, and, are, and are eking out a living doing not and you know when you when you make a living you find yourself doing all kinds of different stuff and that kind of keeps it interesting mm-hmm. I hope that we continue to support our comic book artists and buy graphic novels and comic art and you know do what we can to, to support these folks let's start with Tim Bradstreet rawstudios.com yeah <laughs> So I guess it was about this time in the late '90s you started getting to like the the bigger budget movies, like uh, uh of course the aforementioned Face Off, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm sure Izzy's as well. Well, my cat is named Caster Troy. That's so. true. The cat right here next to us. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun fun script. Uh, it was a fun movie. You know, I I met Nick Nick Cage on that uh, job. I was a young actor just coming up, and and Nick said, hey, you know, I heard about you and. You know, good luck and stuff like that. It was very encouraging. Um, it was uh, it was a good experience. I love watching John Woo, who pretended that he didn't speak English. You know, whenever he f- didn't want to do something or didn't like what he was hearing, he he just suddenly wouldn't know English. But he actually knew English pretty well. Uh, he was really fun to watch. You know, and I I was already a fan of his stuff, so it was good. No, I wore a fat suit in uh, Face Off. Oh, really? Yeah, just for fun. I I just said to the guy, you know, wouldn't it would be kind of it would be kind of fun to wear a fat suit? And the makeup art, and they they're all like, yeah, great. So I I put on this fat suit, and uh, and the makeup artist was he would experiment. He would do these little tiny red dots on my neck, and uh, I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know. You're a smaller character, and I can sort of experiment with you, and I'm just trying out some new uh, makeup techniques, you know. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are, that's what I remember from Face Off. <laughs> what, you remember, what was it like wearing those uh, those those giant boot things? Right. Yeah, they were a pain in the ass. I remember putting those on, and I remember. Um, Lining up, you know, all the extras would have to wear them. And then at the end of the day, they had this area set aside where everybody would leave their boots. And uh, so there would be hundreds of pairs of these metal boots all lined up, you know, against the walkway there at one point. Um, yeah, they were they were a pain in the ass. Well, and then uh, it, you were in uh, Boogie Nights, uh, with a great ensemble cast, and uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, what was like on the set there working with, uh, I mean... John C. Riley, like, like everybody. <laughs> right. It was a good time. You know, we had a bunch of actors all kind of crammed together, especially when we're shooting the party scene at that house. That's when we had everybody together. 
and we were there for three or four days. And uh, I remember, um, what's his name? The mustache, Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds, yeah, yeah. I remember Burt Reynolds would, you know, end up. We'd be waiting for these setups because they were. We'd have to rehearse these giant long takes, so we'd spend half the night rehearsing and then half the half the night shooting. Um, so in between setups, uh, Burt Reynolds would start telling stories about what it was like to be an actor in the 1950s. You know, when he was starting out and running around New York City looking for work. Um, and at the time, uh, he looked pretty much just like Marlon Brando. And that's why Bert w grew the mustache, because he looked so much like Brando that he would get mistaken for Brando on the street. He'd get, you know, of course he got laid a lot that way, but he'd also get, you know, very hard to get work because you're like, oh, that's, fuck, you look just like Marlon Brando. So that's why he grew that mustache. Um, but he would sit around and tell these great stories uh, about, you know, the business and Jimmy Dean and all kinds of neat stuff. And we were all just kind of sitting at his feet in awe. That was a good memory. And, uh, and then shortly after that, you were in uh, the Thin Red Line, another great ensemble cast, uh, and probably one of the, I'd say easily one of the top ten World War Two movies, or war movies of all time. Uh, but how, how are the conditions and everything? It looks like a you know pretty grueling shoot and everything. Came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, came out because we shot it before Saving Private Ryan, but it came out after because Terry's been about a year in the editing room. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, he just he just would editing, but he shot so much damn footage, um, you know that that uh, it was you know I actually auditioned for the part of Wit. Uh, that, uh, that that ended up being the lead of the film. Um, Adrian Brody, in the script, Adrian Brody's part was, he was the lead, but then as they started shooting, this character of Wit ended up being the lead, and Adrian basically got cut out of the film, which, by the way, Terry neglected to tell uh, Adrian when they went to the premiere. Adrian thought, hey, I'm starring in this movie. He brought his family and his friends, and they all showed up, and they literally sat in their premiere as Adrian proceeded to realize that he didn't even have one fucking line in the movie. So that was that was a little oversight on Terry's party. He, he might have, you know, gave him a little hint. Or he might have fucking told him, hey, pal, you know. But he didn't. Uh, at least that's the story I heard. Um, but it, I love Terry. I, I, I think most actors do. They'd do anything for him. He's, he's a genius. A wonderful, smart sensitive man uh, I auditioned for Wit and I'd gone in two or three times it came down to me and the guy who got the part and um, and I didn't get it but Terry said and that Terry called me up about two weeks later and he said hey I got this other part for you but I had already taken another film and I said, "Fuck Terry, I can't, I can't do it. I can't drop out of this other movie. I mean, I, I got a contract. I got to do this other film." So he said, "Oh, too bad." So I shot that other film, and then Terry called me again. This is two months later, and he said, "Hey, I got another. I got this part. I want you to come in and play." And I said, "Oh man, Terry, you're not going to believe this, but I'm doing another movie, and I and I had gotten another film." 
so I couldn't do it. And a couple of months went by, and Terry called me again. <laughs> That's a long shoot. Yeah, geez. That's how long these guys were shooting this movie. They, they actually shot it for a year. They were over there in the Solomon Islands, Australia, and a couple other places uh, shooting this thing. And they were shooting for a year, and it was grueling. Um, so Terry said, I got this little part. You know, I'm still shooting, but I got this little part, and I'd love you to come in. He goes, you can fly in, you can shoot it, you'll be gone, you'll be out of here in two days and you fly home. And I said, of, of course, you know, I'll be there. So I flew halfway around the world. I actually ended up on a plane with Mickey Rourke. Uh, Mickey was flying over also to do a, a smaller, small part. And um, we got into some adventures together, uh, flying across across the world. And uh, landed there, and the, you know it's like three or four airplanes. You got to fly to one Australia, then you got to fly to somewhere else, and then you got to take this little puddle jumper over to the Solomon Islands, where it was literally like all these guys were living in. Um, you know, it was very uh, rural, uh, tribal, uh, is what it was. Beautiful, and incredible. I've never seen anything like it. The most beautiful people. Uh, beautiful islands and um and i you know i was there and spent the day on a hill with john toll terry malick and uh and the guy who had who who was playing the part that i didn't get um we had it was a it was a you know a great time and then i flew home with adrian brody brody had been there for a year uh, and we actually wrapped at the same time. Now, me and Adrian had do done a movie together uh, the last time I committed suicide about Neil Cassidy. Oh, yeah. So me and Adrian took off to go scuba diving. I think we flew to Fiji or something. On the way home, we stopped in someplace like Fiji, and we spent a few days. And, you know, Adrian was pretty excited, and he was talking about how his life was going to change after this movie and, and – uh, I was like, man, it's fucking so great. You know, you just spent a year working with Terry Malick, and we talked all about what it was like to work with Terry and all that. And uh, scuba diving, some old World War II submarines and sunken planes and stuff. Oh, wow. Look, looking for skulls in the sand, you know, down there. Of course, they'd already been all taken. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we flew home and... It was a great time. Was a, so I'm working on, I think it was Deep Blue Sea or something. Yeah, another one of our favorites. <laughs> at the studio, and uh, Terry was there. And Terry said, oh, come on in. You know, I'll show you some of the movie. And he showed me some of the movie. And then he showed showed me my scene. And then he said, you know, there's no real reason for your scene to be in this movie, uh, but I just couldn't cut it out. I just like it too much. And uh, I thought that was a great compliment. Yeah. I say it's always good that he's looking out for you. And say poor poor Adrian Brody. Gosh, a year and essentially getting cut out. That's that's unfortunate. That's, but that's, a, you know, that's the job. You never know what's going to happen, you know. And it worked out okay for Adrian. He went on to win an Oscar. Yeah. And, uh, and and he's a terrific actor, you know. But uh, you never know what's going to happen, you know. You work, you spend 
you spend a year working on something or you put your guts and soul into something, you give it everything you got and then it comes out and everybody hates it, you know, or, or you're, you're not even in it anymore or, or, or it turns out to be a uh, work of art, you know, or a, or, or a big hit. Yeah. Big game changer. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you mentioned deep blue sea, uh, and again, one of our favorites, how uh, was like working on that set, you know, with R- director Rennie Harlan, you know, one of the big action directors of the nineties. And, you know, to, to this day, like uh skip trace is pretty good. Um, but it was like, we're like a, like a cult classic like that. Yeah. I mean, we certainly, you know, we had a lot of great talented people. I met Akiva Goldsman who was uh, producing and, and had done, have worked heavily on the rewrite. Um, We've remained friends over the years. I met a lot of great people, made some wonderful friends and um, lifelong friends and, you know, worked my ass off. Um, I felt a little, you know, it was really it was the first. In hindsight, I don't think I should have taken that role, Uh, but I was living in a little cabin in the woods. I was hungry, you know, I wasn't making a, a lot of money and it was the first real money offer that I'd ever gotten. And, um, shit, I didn't know if anyone's ever going to offer me anything like that again. So I thought, you know, and when you're been living off of top ramen and, uh, you know, uh, grits with, with like sort of like mixing up a couple of eggs into your grits so you get some protein, um, you know, once they offer you some money, it sounded it sounded really good, you know, but you take, uh, you know, you take it as it comes. But I think the part was a little too big for me. I, I just wasn't ready to play leads yet. You know, I, I didn't really know my way around the camera. I was still learning, you know, and I was, I've always been kind of a, a little bit of a shy uh, type of a person. Uh, so, so. And then the physical rigors and everything, I'm sure it was a a, a really rough time. (laughs) That kind of pressure, I just wasn't ready for it, you know. But, uh, but, you know, we, we, I did an adequate job and somehow survived. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love it, so. (laughs) Too bad. No, that movie started testing, the studio didn't think they had something. So they were pulling back on their P&A. And then, they started testing it and they took it to New York and we all went to New York and we did a sneak preview and the sneak preview, the audience reaction was the most incredible I've ever seen at any preview. Um, they, when Sam Jackson got eaten by the fucking shark, (laughs) um, the audience went bananas and they went bananas for you know sam was at the peak of his fame at that moment and the way it was set up was that sam was going to come in and sort of take over and then he gets eaten by a fucking shark and the audience lost their minds and they wouldn't shut up for at least i think it was four or five minutes that they didn't shut up about this they were laughing and screaming and talking and crying and they just went fucking bananas and the studio realized that they had something on their hands. But it was, I think, the week before the movie was set to open. So they, they tried. They started pouring on the, the, ad, the television ads. and try, But they, they had sort of got behind the eight ball. They, they, they didn't know what they had on their hands. So the, the P&A wasn't quite as heavy as it would have been if, 
if they knew that they had a hit on their hands. And then this little tiny movie that was shot on video cameras in the woods came out uh, on the same weekend. It was called The Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project opened on the same day as Deep Blue Sea and obliterated everything. I mean, it was like this cultural phenomenon. It was the first Internet film. It was really the birth of the Internet with this uh, Blair Witch Project because suddenly um, the Internet word of mouth had made that movie a hit. And and it was a game changer. And the other game changer that came out around the same time was The Matrix. And, and so then Deep Blue Sea is, was very much of the old school Hollywood uh, studio uh, action movie, right? And those two elements, The Matrix and The Blair Witch Project, were game changers, uh, which we, we now live in that world that uh, was basically created by those two films. So I think Deep Blue Sea got eaten by it was a product of its uh, time it was a 20th century movie whereas the uh, Blair Witch Project and um, Matrix were 21st century films and I have to ask uh, are you going to see The Meg (laughs) or have you seen it already maybe I don't know (laughs) I I have little interest in um, in studio films um, you know with, with the exception of uh, some really talented filmmakers, um, the uh, and you know I had a 15 year old daughter, so we'll go and see sort of the the Marvel movies or you know uh, that kind of stuff, and they're excellent. You know, uh, most of them most of them are really well crafted. Um, but I've you know um, you kind of lose your taste for the some of these this the studio fare. You know, I, I feel like I feel like unless you're going to bring something interesting and and new to the party, um, we've sort of seen it before, and you know why waste why waste our time? And that, but that's a product of age, you know, being 49 years old. I, you these kids. Are... Sorry, just one moment. Our neighbors are passing by. Apparently, they're a motorcycle gang. Sorry. <laughs> okay, here we go. Sorry about that. They go by about once an hour. Four hours a day. <laughs> Picked up their milk, huh? Yeah. Pretty much. Baby formula. They forgot their baby formula. They got to go grab it. They're going for a weed run. <laughs> what were we talking about? The studio movies. Yeah. yeah. So unless you're going to bring something interesting, and by the way, you know, people in their twenties, they're still kind of just getting started, going through that merry-go-round. But you know, you get a little. I mean, I, I'm into like older movies now, and foreign films and interesting stuff but i love you know or like shane black you know like what he brings to the the predator is uh something that's that's fresh and if you're unless you're going to bring something sort of fresh and original to the party i i i don't i'm going to stay home um but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen i mean i i think i loved working with shane i think uh I, I I just I'm a big fan of his and we tried to work together a couple times in the past so so this is the one that it that it worked out with and I loved every second of it and uh, and I and I just hope that they leave in you know the, the more Shane Black I hope they leave the Shane Black in the movie I'm sure they will 
Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, there's a particular reason they give him the reins to a franchise like that, and they they like his style, but... Yeah, don't give it to Shane Black unless you watch Shane Black. Yeah, I've been a huge, huge fan of his for many years, so... Yeah, I was so excited mm-hmm. when uh, when I heard, well, you, you being part of the Predator and him yeah. kind of run it, and the great cast uh, coming out here in a couple weeks... Yeah, how was it like a, a very testosterone driven kind of it? Because you know all the all the great guys, you know Boyd Holbrook and right. No, you'd think so, but no, man. We were just having a blast the whole time. You know, it was a lot of jokes, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of great times. We, you know, on a set like that, there's usually you know a bunch of actors and a bunch of egos. There's usually like one guy who's just sort of an asshole. Uh, you know, he's sort of like the prima donna or, or he's insecure. So he's a prick. I mean, it's pretty much like a staple of these kind of movies. Like there is that guy, but on this movie, there wasn't that guy. Uh, everybody was down to earth and very cool and liked hanging out with each other. You know, we all got along in a really nice way that made the whole experience pretty special. And I think we'll all. Uh, remember it for a long time you know and you know the work was really fun you know we we got usually that kind of thing you're just kind of running around and grabbing the gun and doing a shoulder roll and punching that guy and you just do that all day but this because of Shane and because of the actors that they hired um, we brought a lot more to the party you know we brought a lot of character and I just really hope they leave it in yeah because you could easily just take it out and just have guys shooting guns, but but the the thing that made it exciting and fun to do, and what I hope ends up on the screen, was the, all the great shit that we got to do together, acting. You know, the different characters that we brought to the party and all the crazy shit that happens to us. Um, that that's what made it a blast. Well, yeah, fingers crossed on that. We got a couple more weeks. <laughs> so excited for and, it. Uh, what, what's this uh, other movie, the Axel AXL that that's uh, coming out with the, uh, the ro- robot dog? A robot dog. Yeah. What, yeah. How, what, what's this? I, I didn't hear much about it until I was uh, looking it up and saw the trailer, but. Well, you haven't because you're over the age of uh, 13. So I'm just going to take a, a flyer on that. You know, you're. It, it really is a, a movie for, you know, 12-year-old boys. And that's, you know, somebody's got to make a movie for 12-year-old boys. I mean, my beef my beef with that movie was the robot dog, you know. I said, guys, and I wrote, I actually, I you know, I, I did it as a favor, and I did it because I liked the young director that they got to uh, write and direct the movie. And he did this really cool short film. I think you can find it online. And... I thought he was great, you know. I thought he brought a sense of reality to the kids and stuff. Um, but my, I wrote a letter to him and the producer, uh, David Goyer. Um, and I, it was my thesis on robot dogs. And uh, I just my, – my emphasis was you got to have a robot dog that's alien enough to make it superficially scary. You know, it, it has all the great classic robots – are not cute robot fucking dogs. And the uh, the danger is to try to make that dog sort of like, uh, it can, you know, because a robot dog has the potential to be as loyal as anything, you know, like programmed loyalty. Like you can ch- cut 
cut off a leg and it'll still be loyal to you because it's a robot. It's programmed to do that. But if you put that on the exterior, that's something that has to be earned by the the young kids who are sort of, you know, discovering this dog and and the exterior the exterior of the dog has to be frightening you know it has to be inhuman it has to be capable of anything because if it's already cute and fuzzy it's going to love you no matter who you are but if it's could kill you you know and, and it looks like it could kill you then you've earned its loyalty in a in a way you know you've you've walked through through the fire you know, you you've learned to not be intimidated by the possibility that this robot dog could chew your head off. So, you know, I was just campaigning to make a uh, make the robot, you know, scary. Yeah, kind of a grittier, more realistic kind of a, a vision for it. Like a like Iron Giant. Yeah, yeah. It's gotta be big and scary so that then. then and, and, I, use, and I use the example of Iron Giant in my. In my uh, thesis letter, excellent. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, I think I, I, I think the robot turned out to be not as cute as uh, they'd initially planned, but <laughs> I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll, I'll admit the the glowing eyes thing kind of kind of creeped me out a little bit, but um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how it goes, I guess. <laughs> Thirteen year old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll like it. Sure they will. <laughs> well, and uh, you mentioned like the the big Marvel movies and superhero movies. Uh, of course, we have to mention you were in 2004's The Punisher, which is a great movie with John Travolta. It, again, you were the lead. You know, five years after Deep Blue Sea. Uh, how how was that experience? You know, being the lead in a superhero movie just as they were really starting to kind of take off. Well, we had a little more freedom, I think. I think they were still trying to find their legs. And again, you know, I had the same sort of, <clears throat> I had the same sort of reaction to the, you know, I turned that, I turned down the Punisher several times, a couple of times uh, before I finally agreed to say yes. And because I was campaigning from the beginning to be faithful, I'm a comic book guy. I've never been a Marvel guy. Um, but I've always loved comics since I was a young kid. And as a comic book guy, you know, I knew you have to be loyal to these, you know, storylines. You have to be true to the characters. And they weren't in a way that I felt was pretty essential. Uh, and they, uh, you know, um, I, I had some issue with, uh, shooting it in Florida. You know, the reason we shot in Florida was because John Travolta agreed to be the bad guy, but he um, had a had a he lived in this community where everybody owns an airplane. So there's sort of like a giant neighborhood. Yeah, it's like a giant neighborhood where instead of having a garage, you have an airplane hangar. And he said, if you guys shoot in Florida, then I could fly to work every day. And that's why we. Nice. So you know, if you ask me, that's that sort of says it all. Yes. Well, and uh, we actually were just on a, another podcast, uh, the What Were They Thinking podcast, talking about uh, the Jonah Hex movie, and you had auditioned for that uh, for that yeah. character. Uh, was there something in particular about Jonah Hex that drew you in? Are you just like uh, like a fan of westerns or? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a great character. You know, it's one of those things where God smiled, and I did not get the role. 
because again, th- those these kind of things are hard to handle. You know, uh, let me say it, you got to give credit to people who actually can take a comic book um, storyline and to make turn it into a really good film. It's not easy. Um, you know, you'd think it would be easy. You got all the material there. Christ, the damn thing's practically storyboarded for you. You know, some some of the, some of these writers are fantastic. You know, comic book writers—they really know how to weave a yarn together. Yeah, but so, but surprisingly, it is not easy. Um, there's um, a lot, you know, of translation that needs to to bring something from a comic book world into the real world requires a lot of tone and style and to get that right takes a lot of work you know so so the the movies that that don't i mean that's why you know there's more movies comic book movies that don't work that than do and when they do work uh it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal you You did do the voice of jonah hex for a couple of the uh the animated movies uh uh, how's it doing uh at least like the um, voiceover work and stuff like that with those i've done a few voiceover things over the years and i've always enjoyed it i like working with those people um you know there's it's there's some freedom and just sitting in a box and doing it all with your voice that's always fun but i actually don't have any memories of doing uh, jonah hex um uh, cartoon thing i don't remember I remember doing the uh, video game. I did a Punisher video game back in the day. I think it was Punisher video game. Yeah. yeah. And I did another video game, uh, something about a gun. Um, and I don't remember that one. But yeah. yeah. And I remember having a lot of fun on those. Uh, that was fun. I liked the, the Punisher one. And, um, of course, in your history, you, you've actually been in a few uh, Stephen King-based movies like Dreamcatcher and, of course, uh, the, the Mist, which is another incredible movie we love. Yeah. Uh, is there something about Stephen King's stories that particularly <laughs> you have an interest in? or? And recently in 1922, yes, for Netflix, yes. um, well, I've always been a fan. I mean, I, I think it'd be hard-pressed to find a guy who works in Hollywood that's not a Stephen King fan. Um, you know, he's, I think he's got the record for movies that have been, uh, adapted from his material. I'm sure he's got oh, the record. I, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the guy just weaves a, a very compelling, very visual, uh, story, you know, and, and he's great at it. And what's funny is, you know, he's, he does it all with words. I mean, he is a really fine writer. He's got a voice. Uh, and it's a voice that you want to listen to. It's like grandpa telling a story by the fire. You know, it, he's got a real voice uh, that uh, that he that he brings his characters to life with. So I think that, you know, people read that and they start being able to visualize this. It just feels real to them. So they're like, why isn't this a movie? And uh, I think more things have been adapted that Stephen's written that he hasn't. I think he's got more stuff that's been turned into film than stuff that he, that hasn't been turned into film. And there's still a couple of great stories that haven't been turned into film yet that should be and probably will be. Um, but as far as me, you know, no, I, I just, you know, I read scripts and try to pick the best stuff that comes around that, while I'm available to do it. You know, I, I don't, you know, I got to make a living, so... 
you know, it's like I got to go to work. So I've got to choose between these three projects, you know, and I pick the best one. Uh, the best, the one with the best script, the one with the best, most exciting director, and take it from there. You know, so this this one came around 1922, and I really enjoyed, loved the short story, uh, which I'd already read, and uh, or had I? No, maybe I hadn't read that yet. It's a great story, in it, and I think that the script was was really faithful uh, to the story. I, you know, again, uh, there's stuff I don't like about uh, 1922 but i really enjoyed what i did you know i i i enjoyed i'm I'm getting in you know i'm in my late 40s so i'm starting to get some opportunities to do some character work that uh that i've really always wanted to do and and always thought that i've been uh good at and so i've been able to do that over the past couple of years and i just did a i just played an lapd cop in a movie called crown vic um, another really good character-driven story. So I'm really enjoying this this time, you know, where I, I'm starting to get some really interesting uh, parts coming my way. I loved playing, uh, you know, that, that guy, Wilfred, in 1922. I had a blast, you know. Uh, so I'm hoping more stuff like that comes along. Yeah, see, you're uh, also on uh, Sci-Fi's uh, The Expanse. Uh, it- I think what season four is going to be coming up soon. Is that right? Yeah, I think they're going to start shooting that in the fall. Yeah. How uh, how's the experience the past couple of years working as a uh, you know uh, the investigator? Yeah, we had well first the books. You know, I read the first couple of books. I thought they were great. You know, and your your my storyline kind of mixes film noir with uh, sci-fi, and I like. I'm I'm in, you know. Blade Runner is one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, really hooked me when I was a kid, and uh, so to get to sort of play in that kind of world is great. But the thing that really attracted me to it was the work of Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby, um, who uh, write the sh- or are writers on the show. Uh, a couple of the, the lead writers on the show, they kind of created the thing, um, and. Uh, I just love that writing, you know, that's as an actor, you just you look for writing that's compelling. It's something you can dig your teeth into. That's something that's not just superficial and that has an opportunity for to explore, to bring something to life, you know, uh, to use to use yourself, some other deeper parts of yourself and bring that to a role. Um, So that's what I was. You know, that's what attracted me to the expanse. The thing that didn't attract me was that it was on a sci-fi channel. Um, <laughs> that's always scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but they had the money with Alcon, a company called Alcon, who actually did Blade Runner 2049, were were putting up the cash. So it was it was not a sci-fi show, but it was being aired this on sci-fi. Sci-fi was paying to to have to to have it, but not own it. Um, so that gave us some freedom and it gave us some money to spend and, you know, uh, we got some fantastic production design, uh, Tony, who does the production design on that show, I think is phenomenal. We got Jeremy Benning, who does the, uh, the DP work, uh, also phenomenal. We have a terrific, uh, wardrobe costumer and, um, uh, and a great special effects guy. Um, and, you know, as well as some really fine writers on that show. And that's what's kept it alive. You know, the story about The Expanse is that we got canceled uh, season three. 
Um, but Jeff Bezos was a fan of the show, and he's and he he was at some space convention, and he at the space convention he goes, you know, I heard the Expanse got canceled. He goes, that that's bullshit. I can't, you know. He goes, I I'm gonna buy that show. We're gonna put it on Amazon, and he did. And that was kind of amazing, you know. That's a real Cinderella type story, uh, and it really came from Jeff, and it came from the fans, you know. This this show offers something that's um, something that's rare, it hasn't really been seen. It takes space exploration and sort of asks what how what would it really be like, you know, in a hundred years, when when we when when we start colonizing mars and start mining the asteroid belt and what what what's the world going to be like you know and cl- climate change is you know wreaked havoc on on our own planet and we're looking at you know uh, expanding into the universe if we're going to survive as a species you know well can we do we have the political you know gumption to be able to do that can we get along enough you know uh, these these factions uh, people living on mars people living in the the asteroid belt people on earth you know what what's going to happen are they going to become like nations uh, ask some really terrific questions, and and what's it gonna? How do you survive? Are you still human? You know, when you when your genetics starts changing to adapt to another kind of uh, atmosphere, or climate, or gravity, or you know, uh, certain kinds of food that you have to get used to eating, and your body starts adapting, and you start passing those genes on to your to your people, and where. Are you where so you're not really an Earth human anymore? You're a you're sort of a subspecies, you know. Yeah, human so, aid or something. Yeah. And where, where does that leave us? You know, racism and and all that stuff. And, you know, so it's a great platform to explore some really interesting uh, questions about you know modern society. Well, you're obviously busy with a couple of movies coming out and of course shooting for the expanse coming up are there any other like dream projects that you have that you'd love to be a part of or like any any current projects you're working on well i've always been working on uh, directing another movie um you know i directed a movie in 2008 about 10 years ago and and really learned a lot you know i i i uh I learned that I didn't know what I didn't know and I, what I didn't know was quite extensive. So I spent the last 10 years really learning how to write a script, you know, uh, and to teach yourself these things. You gotta, if you're going to survive in, in this, in this world, um, and it's constantly changing, but, uh, you got to teach yourself how to write. You got to teach yourself how to produce. You got to teach yourself how to direct, and if you don't do these things, you're just going to be uh, a, a hired gun. And, you know, where that takes you is is largely due to the whims of the universe. You know, you know, it's like as Stan, someone asked Stanley Kubrick, you know, how do you cast your movies? And he, he says, I cast who's available at the moment when I want to shoot them. And that's <laughs> you know, and that's uh, exactly right. You know, and so. So to have a little a little more control and to make a contribution, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. So now I I often know uh, more than some of the younger guys that I'm being directed by. And that's not a slight against them. You know, they're they're learning and talented uh, people. But uh, but it's time. I have some. I have a contribution to make. You know, I I know how to work with actors. I know how to tell a story. 
And I love it. I absolutely love it. And I want to make a contribution. I want to be able to use some of the skills and stuff that I've learned over the years and give it back, you know. Actors, you know, I tell you, there's so many shows now that, I mean, there's so many shows. It's getting kind of ridiculous. And A, that's a good thing for actors because there's a lot of work, right? But it's a bad thing for actors because they're hiring a lot of really inexperienced guys to direct them and produce them because they're just, they have to, you know, there's like, uh, again, you have to hire who's available. So there's a great opportunity for uh, young directors and producers coming up and writers. And then, you know, the other obstacle is there's so many shows that how do you get your show seen? You know, how, how do you get attention for your show? Um, and that, so that becomes a, you know, uh, an interesting. It's an interesting time, I gotta tell you, and, and we're starting to see a lot of changes. The streaming world is slowly usurping uh, the studio world, the cable world. It's all becoming about streaming, and that means that you have easy access. You know, pretty much anybody with a router can can and a, and a video a cell phone camera can edit something together and start streaming it. You know, and if you can get people to watch it. Good for you, you know. Um, so there's this great opportunity, but there's also, you know, the challenges are you gotta you gotta know what you're doing. You gotta be good enough to make something that can compete with with the for the eyeballs and the hearts and the minds of people. And um, you know, you you got to find a way to get it out there in a way that people know it exists. Yeah. Is there like a favorite uh, genre or like like a play or graphic novel or something you'd be looking to adapt or something you wrote? Oh, well, I've get you know if you're gonna get something going, you got to have several projects in the fire, right? Yeah. So I've been working on a few things over the years. You know, I wrote a western about five five six years ago. Uh, that turned out to be a little more expensive. Then, uh, you know, I mean, I guess there's a version where you could go make it for three million bucks, but I want to I'd rather and I've had offers to do that, but I'd rather make it for eight or nine million and uh, and, and, you know, do it right the first time. So I I wrote a pretty terrific Western um, that's sitting on a back burner. I've also got a really great script came to me. Um, It's called Returner, and it's about. sort of takes place in the early 1930s in Chicago. It's got Al Capone and his crew. It's Prohibition. But it's also this sort of gothic love story about this uh, veteran of World War One, and he's and he's uh, living in the town, and he's got to, well, I, I know what, he, he gets killed, uh, but he won't stay dead, you know, and, it, and it's this, this, uh, I don't want to give it away, but it's yeah, um, yeah, it's great, this great <laughs> sort of gothic, you know. Uh, for me, it reminds me of, like a cross between uh, John Wick and The Crow. Uh, it's sort of a, a a pretty good, pretty neat blend of those two, and I'm excited about that. So we're we're taking that around, kicking that around. I got another project that I'm working on about aliens. Like alien abduction or like uh, going on another planet and there's aliens or yeah what do you think about alien abduction what what do you think that <laughs> do, do people know about this or is it i hear the internet's kind of full of um ufo websites and stuff what do you think about that uh 
I I have noticed that since the number of uh, cell phone cameras have gone up, the uh, abduction stories have gone down. There's a little bit of that, but ah. I I was raised by two people who, when we went camping, would go like UFO searching. We right when I was ten, we got way too close to the uh, Area 51. The I forget where right. the base in. Uh, yeah. base was and got interrogated at a uh, machine gun point so wow. I, uh, I I grew up a little bit deep in it so yeah. right. <laughs> I, I, I may be a little bit biased <laughs> yeah well I gotta tell you you know people have been conditioned uh, from a very early age to laugh and giggle as they talk about, you know, extraterrestrial visitation. But uh, I think it's going to be quite a wake-up call when people realize that it's that it that it is going on and has been going on for quite a while. For some reason, we've got this like implant in our mind that socially, and it was very well done by the Air Force. You know, they they made a concerted <laughs> campaign to make sure that everyone who reported seeing one of these things was laughed at and ridiculed. Uh, and they got some very heavy hitting, heavy hitters on their side, including Carl Sagan, um, who always believed in extraterrestrial life. And for some reason, for many reasons that are kind of esoteric when I look them up, many reasons, he um, says that, you know, that aliens would visit Earth once every 10,000 years, you know, so he said, yeah, maybe in the deep past or maybe in the deep future, but not now. And when you look into these arguments, they're actually, they're based on nothing, you know, they're based on absolutely nothing. They're based on air. Uh, so you've got, on the one hand, the argument against extraterrestrial visitation is based on air. Uh, and then the the argument for it is based on some really really spectacular sightings that have happened by human beings on our planet. Not just a couple of hundred, not just a couple of thousand, hundreds of thousands of people have reported these things. Maybe millions. I think it is millions actually by now. Yeah, so, yeah. so I just find that you know, but we we have this barricade of um, television and movies. And uh, science, you know, uh, who, you know, if you talk, try to talk to this, this stuff to any of the, you know, like Bill Nye, the science guy, or uh, you're, they're just going to laugh you out of the room and say there's nothing to it. Even the guy, even Seth Shostak, you know, who spends his life looking for alien intelligence, even he refuses to look at it. But he, they do that for a reason because, you know, it's called funding. Uh, you're not going to get any funding if you start, you know, trying to take this seriously. So it's very, very interesting. Uh, I find it, I find it fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. Looking at it from like a scientific standpoint, like it, it makes sense that there are other beings, other planets. But it's just like, you know, we we kind of see ourselves as the well, would we be able to go across the universe to other planets where there's these beings and do it? Oh no, not right now. So how could any other society do that right but you know it it, it we've left the planet <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah there's a chauvinism involved you know an amazing chauvinism and a human sort of chauvinism there's a scientific chauvinism there's just there's all these and what you find though if, if you do some some research into the history of science 
you find these revolutions in scientific thought have occurred, and before they occur, there's this great resistance to these new ideas, say like atoms, right? The idea of atoms and electrons was laughed out of the room. People were vehemently opposed to this this idea. Uh, same thing with germs. germs. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> vehemently opposed. You know, careers were ruined by uh, expounding the idea that tiny little creatures lived on your hands and could get you sick. Um, you know, they 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 are not kind to people who have new ideas. So what seems, you know, obvious, uh, even trite to us today was actually at one time, you know, laughable uh, by this, this sort of the, the majority of, of people. And and I, we are in the exact same boat. No one seems to think, though, when you look around, you're like, hey, could we be in the same boat today? Could the things that we believe in so vehemently today be just as fallacious as they were in the past? And you look in the past and you find that there's no time that society or science or humanity has ever had it all figured out. Yeah, sure. uh, so it's a pretty darn good bet that we do not have it all figured out right now. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating time, you know, and, and, and you just think about the waste, the scientific waste, you know, because let me tell you, the idea that extraterrestrial uh, intelligence is, is, exists and is visiting our planet is – it's the biggest scientific boon of all time. I mean, it's the discovery of the millennia, and yet uh, it's being completely ignored. It makes you wonder, you know, like, wow, if the reward, if the boon is that big, then why is there that much resistance to exploring it? You know, and then and then you then you start getting into some really interesting territory because there are answers to that question. Gosh, blow my mind now. <laughs> Just thinking about Independence Day, you're like, oh, I guess I won't bring up Independence Day. <laughs> I was actually thinking, uh, I, I've always thought, you know, like, hmm, maybe Men in Black is more fact than fiction. Yeah, you know? yeah I mean, it's in a funny way. I mean, there certainly are, um, you know, believe me, there are factions of our government that take this very seriously. And uh, so, yes, so there is a, a version, you know, uh, of um, of that, uh, you know, sectors of people who who uh, know have a lot of information and they guard that information very, very well. Oh, I know firsthand uh, if you claim you've seen aliens, they're definitely government uh government divisions who want to come and speak to you about it yes that's exactly right uh, and 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 people do you know have these first-hand experiences and you know i think it's starting to become more acceptable i think that you know we could be in for some really interesting uh, times ahead you know that the new york times had an article in december of 2017 um about a secret program that the um Pentagon ran for a few years, uh, and uh, and uh, you know they said they spent a paltry twenty-two million dollars on this program, and you know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. But what's fascinating is that it was in the New York Times, who was consistently berated the whole idea. I mean, from the very beginning, from the nineteen from nineteen forty-seven on. They have consistently, uh, you know, disparaged anybody who tried to take it seriously. So it's very interesting that the New York Times would have uh, an article that that actually, you know, tried to discuss it seriously. Some some interesting things are afoot. 
Um, and Hollywood has always sort of carried that ball. You know, the 1947 wave of UFO sightings is what sparked movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still by Robert Wise. Okay. Yeah, yeah great flick. So people tend to somehow have it reversed in their minds that they think, oh, they showed some, you know, UF flying saucers in the movies, and now everybody's seeing them. No, it's the reverse, as it's always been. Hollywood, you know, capitalizes on trends that go on in 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 our society, and that and they make a lot of money doing it. So. Uh, you know, the the thing from another world, Howard Hawks or the Robert Wise film or, you know, uh, Destination Earth, all these movies, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. These were all, you know, a, in a direct reaction to all the sightings that were seen in America. So my question is uh, how when's the last time there's been a, a Hollywood movie that's taken the UFO subject seriously? Um, and, and, uh, without any, you know, without, without turning the aliens into, you know, friendly stuff and yeah, it's either kid friendly or they, you know, they're how to serve man, you know, they're eating you for breakfast. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking like alien nation actually, is like one of the last ones I can think of. I mean, there've been a couple of like TV series of like aliens and humans living together and stuff like that, but they're all, they're all. They're all based more on fantasy than on fact. But when you start digging into the facts, man, it's way more interesting. You know, I'm really excited for this Project Blue Book um, show that's coming out. I I really have my fingers crossed, and I hope uh, that they that they do it justice. You know, uh, that could be really fascinating. Because I was a kid in the '70s when the first original Project Blue Book uh, television show was on, and I was waiting for that episode where they were finally going to go, ooh, that's mysterious. So they would investigate these these claims on TV, and at the end of the show, they would always prove that it was a weather balloon or a meteor or a satellite. And, and you know, of course, it turned out that the, the Air Force was sponsoring the damn show, and that's what they wanted people to believe. Now, see, I watched a lot of those shows growing up, too, but I never believed when they were like, turns out it was a weather balloon. I was like, no, that's what you want me to think it is. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I may have grown up in a skewed household. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than people realize. And I'm always interested in trends, the way things turn, the way, you know, um, attitudes change in society, you know, where we used to where one thing is acceptable today. And tomorrow we're going to wonder why the hell that was ever acceptable, you know, whether it's racism or homophobia or or or, um, you know, aliens from other planets. Uh, I'm fascinated how how the the accepted wisdom of the day is actually totally false and and how we how that comes to light, you know, and I think that Hollywood movies play a can play a wonderful uh, role in changing people's minds and opening the doors and shedding some light on some real subjects you know absolutely that's why our uh, podcast is called everything i learned from movies hopefully uh, it'll be be towards good in the future <laughs> there, there you go i say uh, on on that note are there any lessons that you've learned uh, being in the industry or throughout your life that you'd like to share with our listeners so that they uh they, they'll help them improve their lives? Well, boy, that's an interesting question. You know, um, lessons I've learned from movies that have sort of changed my life. 
Yeah, or or like uh, your experiences in the industry, or just things you've kind of picked up from people. This is one of those questions where about ten minutes from now, I'll I'll have, I'll have <laughs> a uh, a good answer. Um, when I think back, I mean, look, the, the film film changed my life. Okay, uh, I my parent my my dad was a movie buff and he still is and so we used to go to the movies friday nights and i grew up in a time when um when i was a i was the perfect age you know i i was 10 11 12 13 years old when movies like jaws star wars close encounters of the third kind blade runner um back to the future uh, some really iconic and sort of society-shaking films came out. The film that changed my life was Alien, you know, because I was eight and my my parents didn't have money for a babysitter, so they would take us to movies and you know to R-rated movies. My sister was uh, three years younger than me, and we'd all you know, and this was a common in the late seventies or eighties, you know, you yeah. you pack you'd, because it, it didn't say kids can't come; it said kids must be accompanied by an adult. Um, but I was eight years old and we went to see Alien. We went to the second show of a matinee on opening weekend. And I remember standing in line and watching the people come out from the first show. And I noticed that they looked kind of pale, pasty and in shock. And I thought, what, what am I getting myself into? Because nobody had said anything about what this movie was. There was just a picture. It said Alien, and there was a green egg on the poster. It could have been anything. It could have been a comedy, for all I knew. I knew nothing about going in. And that movie started, and I still remember to this day uh, the opening credits of that film, the way these jagged lines would appear that slowly formed the word Alien. Uh, and that film... Uh, cha- changed my perspective on what it, what reality was about what it meant to, and what the possibilities were. I didn't didn't think it was possible to be a part of those movies. I was eight. They came from some mysterious you know land uh, of light where somehow they were beamed into these dark places and and they they were real. You know the people in them were real and the, the stuff that happened in them were were, were real um, to me. And, uh, you know, my mother, when the when the chestbursters, the chestburster scene uh, happened and that thing burst out of that guy's chest, my mother threw her Coke on the lady behind us. (laughs) Higher Coke. She just threw it. uh, You know, up her hands went up and the Coke went with it and it landed all over this woman. And she did not get up to go to the bathroom to change, you know, to get wiped out. She stayed in her seat to watch the rest of the movie. So and that that's a uh, quite a testament, you know, uh, to I've 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 never seen that, and I still haven't seen a movie as good as Alien. It's still probably my it's one of my top two movies of all time. But you know, uh, for some reason, the the movies uh, changed my life, you know, and and if I wasn't doing what I was doing today. Uh, I'd probably be in prison or, or uh, you know, be uh, I went I was downtown earlier uh, serving lunch to, to folks at the Midnight Mission. Um, and uh, I go down there from time to time because I've eaten at the Midnight Mission and uh, and I uh, would probably still be there, you know, if it wasn't for the movie business, you know, for having people that dedicate their lives to telling stories to other people. You know, and, and doing it in the, the 
wonderful various ways that we do in film. Um, you know, if it wasn't for this, you know, I, I wouldn't have a life. So I've learned everything from movies, everything, everything in my house, all my the clothes down in my closet, my car, you know, my my kids tuition. It all comes from my passion and love for uh, for film and for what we do, you know. So um, so yeah, and, I, and I think it everybody gets a seat at the table, you know, uh, whether you're, you know, some you're making Plan Nine from outer space, uh, or you're making Gandhi. You know, it, it, they're they're all sort of equal in a in a weird way. You know, they they have an e they have an equal chance to impress you and, or, and to make you think about something and to connect. Uh, you know, with, with you, and that's really what it's about, right? It's about Absolutely. connection. It's about uh, opening yourself up to other um, realities, other ways of life, other ways of thinking uh, you know and it's just it's powerful i mean that's that's hopefully what all of art art does uh i think it's a tragedy that um, you know the liberal arts have been uh hacked out of colleges you know i, I it's the reason why we do what we do you know we we, we actually are not eating drinking shitting uh, money machines you know we we have we can have you know, uh, we can have a, something called a life, you know, and and I think that uh, you know books and movies and art and music, especially music, can you know that's sort of the the siren song, right? That's the call. Yeah. Yeah, excellent, well said, well said, and we're certainly glad you're able to make uh, be a part of these wonderful movies and uh, instead of living on the street. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with us. It it has mm -hmm. been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully we'll keep in touch. And uh, when the next couple of projects come out, we'd love to help promote those as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. You gotcha. And, and everybody out there, if you've got a little money, go donate to Midnight Mission. Yeah, absolutely. Always good. And uh, yeah, for, for your time, you know, and there's a couple other places down there uh, too, that, and uh, especially in LA. That we, um, you know, it's endemic of a whole country right now, but uh, they are coming in in busloads, man. People that had a home yesterday and don't have a home today, you know, they're not all dirty alcoholics, although there is a lot of those guys, too, and they need to eat, too. And they also can and do turn their lives around and, and uh, you know, and, and make a contribution to society, all those people, everybody. You know, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what you're doing today. You know, if you're breathing, you, you have a shot at doing something else tomorrow. Uh, and they all, they all need some help. Well said. And uh, where where can we uh, follow you? I know there's the rawstudios.com. I don't know if you like, uh, uh, you know, wants to follow you on Twitter for any updates. Yeah, I don't uh, do the, I don't. I don't, I don't like social media. I, something's wrong with social media. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think mostly if, you know, somebody said uh, if I took away all the time that I read tweets and hang out on Facebook, I could probably read, you know, six or eight books uh, a year, you know, so I'd rather be reading books to tell you the truth. So rawstudios.com, you can check. I, I post on there from time to time. I'm about to put a new post about the predator you know i try to put i try to po do a post for the movies that i got coming out so i'll do that you can check it out there 
Excellent. Yeah, definitely be doing that. And again, thank you so much for spending time with us, Mr. Jane. Yes, thank you so, so much. It's been wonderful. It was a pleasure, you guys. Pleasure. And uh, keep keep looking up. Watch the skies. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and just on that note, so so what what are I don't know if you really got into this. What what are your thoughts on aliens? Like, are they just kind of observing us right now? Are they looking to come down and share society? Like, what what, what do you right. think the end game is? I guess. <laughs> well, that that's a whole other conversation. Uh, <laughs> certainly, get into that if we do this again. But I will yeah, say <laughs> that I will I will leave you with this. I'll say that um, the anthropomorphic ideas that we have. You know, when we ask the question, you know, well, what 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 could they possibly want with us? Um, how do they tra- all the questions that we ask? We're asking the wrong questions uh, because they're anthropomorphic questions and we're answering them with anthropomorphic answers. Why? Because we're human beings and we we really have no reason to th- try to think like we're not human beings. Um, but we have to be open to the idea that uh, the answers have nothing to do with uh, logic as we understand it. You know, it doesn't have to make sense to us. You know, yeah. and and most likely it won't really make sense to us. Excellent. Yeah. Well said. Excellent. Well, yeah. We'll uh, we'll pick up this conversation next time then. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, but yeah. Again, thank you, Mr. Jane. Uh, have a wonderful evening. And uh, I'll be there opening weekend for the Predator. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Have a good night, sir. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. So, yeah, that was Thomas Jane. Oh, my God. That was so great. We're almost a legitimate podcast now. So we oh, Mr. Jane is amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's very oh. interesting, amazing stories. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, obviously, I'm excited for Predator. Oh out. yeah, yeah, yeah. The but predator. I just love hearing these people's stories of right. like how these things happened and like how some of these just some of my favorite movies were created and. Yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Jane. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, anyone listening, please feel free to follow us at EILF Movies. That's everything I learned from movies. EILFM.podbean.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Google us. You'll find us. Help us uh, bring in more interviews like this. Amazing stuff. Yeah, tell a friend. The more downloads we get on these things, the more other people want to be on as well. And the more maybe we can get people like Thomas Jane back. Yeah. And it's not just a waste of their time, guys. Uh, also, if you'd like to support the podcast, we have an excellent Etsy page. And speaking of the Predator, Predator Loves Kittens, available in my Etsy shop. That's right. Um, it's untidyvenus.etsy.com. That's a goddess who's bad at housekeeping. Yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff in there. There's an alien who loves kittens. The Xenomorph. Uh, yeah, I also have a poster with every single American dog breed on it. Working on a cat breeds one. Salsa through a goose is up there now, as well as on my red bubble and my tea public. And the tea public is also Untidy Venus on Tea Public, the goddess who's bad at housekeeping. My red bubble is different though. That's Izzy Creates. I Z Z Y Creates. All one word. You could check it out. Until next time, I'm Steve. And I'm Izzy. And this is Everything Everything I Learned from Movies. Have a good night, everybody. Night, everybody.